could see that the Lord's help, the Lord's enable him to turn back to that portion of scripture that we read. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 45. Book of Psalms, Psalm 45. And if we just read uh, the first verse. Psalm 45 from the beginning. To the choir master, according to lilies, a masquil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready sky. As you know, the book of Psalms is made up of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But the reason the book of Psalms is called the book of Psalms is simply because there are more psalms in it than hymns or spiritual songs. And this evening we're looking at the psalm numbered 45 in the Psalter, which, as we can read here, is a song. But it's not any kind of song because we're told that it's a love song. And I'm sure that we're all very familiar with the concept of love songs. Uh, songs which express the emotions and feelings which people have uh, towards one another. But what we see here is that this is a love song which was sung at a wedding. It's a wedding song. And from the language of this love song, it's obvious that the occasion of it's the occasion of a royal wedding, uh, which I suppose inspired the, con the, the composition of this song, uh, because it speaks about all the way through the psalm the king and his beauty, and it speaks about the bride and her beauty, this bride who is to be married to the king. But we're not only told, <coughs> well, we're not told uh, whose royal wedding it is. Uh, we're not told who the happy couple were that were getting married. It could have been King David, it could have been King Solomon, it could have been King Hezekiah. We can't be sure. But you know what has often intrigued me about this psalm is who wrote it? Who wrote this song? And yes, we're told at the very beginning that it was the sons of Korah who penned it. We're told that, uh, we're told that in the title, the title which is actually part of it. We're told that the sons of Korah penned it, and the sons of Korah, well, they were musicians in the temple, and they wrote many of the psalms in the Psalter. And then we're told that when they wrote this song, uh, they sent it to the tune, the lilies. And it was regarded as a masquil, which was a, a contemplative poem, a poem full of thought and descriptive and expressive language. But what intrigues me is from what perspective did the sons of Korah write this love song? Because the sons of Korah, they describe the author as one who is full of love for the king. His, his heart is overflowing. As it says in verse 1, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. His heart is overflowing to the king, in which he not only has good and beautiful things to write about the king, uh, but what we realise is that where his source of love comes from is that this love song, it wasn't written 
from the perspective of the king. And it wasn't written from the perspective of the king's bride. But you know, I, I believe that it's written from the perspective of the king's father. The king's father. And so from the outset, we need to see that the king, at this royal wedding, it's not King David or Solomon or Hezekiah, because it's speaking about a greater than King David, Solomon and Hezekiah. It's speaking about King Jesus. And we need to see that this royal love song was composed and sung from the perspective of God the Father. This is God's love song written about Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. This is the Father's love song in which he declares his love for his son and his son's bride. And his love, he says, it just overflows towards them. My friend, this is the Father's love song. And I say this because this psalm is what we often call a messianic psalm. And what we mean by a messianic psalm is a psalm which speaks about the promised Messiah. The Messiah that was to come, Jesus Christ. Now, of course you could say that all the psalms, they speak about Jesus. Or they direct us to praise <laughs> Jesus. But not all, all the psalms are messianic. And so the question may be asked, how can we recognise a messianic psalm? And the answer would be that if there is a reference to the Messiah in a psalm, and it's applied to Jesus Christ, and then it's explained in the New Testament, that psalm is messianic. So if there's a reference to the Messiah, it's applied to Jesus, and then it's quoted in the New Testament. That psalm is messianic. And so Psalm 45 is messianic because it speaks about a king, which is a position or title that was attributed to the Messiah, kingship. Jesus is the king of kings. Uh, but what affirms that Psalm 45 is messianic is that it's quoted in the New Testament. Because in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, when you read Hebrews chapter 1, it begins, uh, the writer to the Hebrews, he begins by saying that God has spoken to us in various way, ways and times gone by. He has spoken through his creation, God has spoken through his prophets, and now God speaks to us through his Son. And then the writer of the Hebrews, he goes on to say that God not only speaks through his Son, God speaks to his Son. And he says in Hebrews 1 verse 8, we're told, And to the Son God says, quoting Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you or Christed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And it's because of the messianic fulfillment of Psalm 45 that makes me think that this royal love song was composed and sung from the perspective of God the Father. It's the Father's love song about Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And that's what we'll see as we go through this psalm. We'll see that the Father gives to us a description of his Son, and then he gives to us the desire for his Son. And that's the two headings I'd like us to use this evening. This is the description of the Son, and then the, the desire for the Son. And the desire, of course, is his bride. So the description of the Son, 
and the desire of the Son. So firstly the description of the Son. The description of the Son. If you look at verse 2, he says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword and your thigh, Almighty One, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. You know, as a parent, and whether it's true or not, you always think that your child is the most beautiful child that you've ever seen. And of course that's because you have such a a love for your own child and uh, you have that love which is above anyone else's child. And you see them as precious and so beautiful because they're your own, they belong to you, they're your flesh and blood and you love them so dearly. And that's something of what we see here in these verses. Because God the Father gives to us this beautiful description of his own son. But you know, the description isn't subjective. It's not biased, which it can be with our children or my children. The description here is objective. It's unbiased. And it's accurate. And it's accurate because the bride agrees with the father's description of the son. The bride agrees with the father's description. The church agrees with the father's description of the beloved son. And that's because the bride of Christ has come to see what the Father has always seen in his Son. The Church of Jesus Christ has come to see the wonder and glory of the Father's Son. But as you know, it wasn't always like that. Because for many of us in here this evening, when it came to Jesus, the Father's Son, it wasn't love at first sight. We were presented with him many times. But we have to confess that when we looked at Jesus, there was no beauty in him. And we didn't desire him. He came to us many times in the Gospels, but we did not receive him. He often passed by in the preaching of the truth, but we often let him go on by. Because back then, Jesus wasn't to us the fairest among ten thousand and one who was altogether lovely. Because then we had other loves, we had other desires, we had other attractions, we had other things which kept us from seeing the beauty of the Father's Son. But my dear friend, aren't you so thankful tonight that those feelings have changed? Whereas you once had feelings of maybe indifference towards Jesus and disinterest in his word and his people. But now you've come to see his beauty. And now you desire to hear his voice speak tenderly to you every day. And you, in a sense you're left saying with David as we were singing in Psalm 27. One thing I of the Lord desire and will seek to obtain that all days of my life I may within God's house remain. That I the beauty of the Lord behold may and admire and that I in this holy place may reverently inquire. Everything's changed. And like David, we come to the Lord's house now longing to see more of the beauty of Jesus 
as he is lifted up before us in the gospel. We want to see more of him. We want to hear more about him. We want to be reminded what he has done for his bride. And we, we come to the Lord's house, you could say, with that desire that the Gentiles had when they came to Philip and they said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Because he is to us, yea, more than gold. Yea, much fine gold. I like that. The language which is used here, it's expressive and figurative. Because words cannot fully describe the beauty and the glory and the wonder of Jesus. Words fail us when it comes to describing our love for Jesus. And that's what we see in the Father's description of his own son. Words can't fully describe the beauty of Jesus and the love that the Father has for him. And with that, the Father opens his love song about his son with this declaration. He says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. But when you read this declaration in its original language, the Father is declaring, he's saying, you are beautifully beautiful. You are beautifully beautiful, more beautiful than any of the descendants of Adam. And it's such a wonderful statement because the Father is speaking about the passion of Jesus Christ. He's speaking about the incarnate Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And what we ought to take from the Father's description about being more beautiful than any of the descendants of Adam, what we ought to take from it is that before the fall, Adam reflected the image and likeness of God perfectly. Adam had been created without sin. He possessed, as the Catechism says, perfect knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But when Adam fell, all was lost. He sinned, came short of the glory of God. And since the fall, None of the sons of Adam, none of the descendants of Adam have attained to the perfection that Adam once had. No one who was born in this world has been born without sin. Every descendant of Adam has possessed original sin. We have all been, as David says, conceived in guiltiness and sin. But when the one who is beautifully beautiful, when he entered into a broken and a fallen world, he was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. And he perfectly reflected the image and likeness of his Father. That's why he declared, I and my Father are one. But more than that, this beautifully beautiful son of Adam, he possessed that perfect righteousness, knowledge and holiness, which the first Adam lost at the fall. And this is why Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam. Because not one of the sons of men, the sons of Adam, not one of them, and there never will be one again who possesses the knowledge, righteousness and holiness of the first Adam. And that's a description which even Jesus gives of himself in the Gospels. He often refers to himself as the son of man. And with that, Jesus is saying that he's the perfect descendant of Adam. But more than that, Jesus is pointing back to the prophecy in Daniel, which 
sent that he would have an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that would not be destroyed. And when Jesus appeared on the stage of history, he affirmed to us that as the Son of Man, he has the, he has the power to forgive sins. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who is going to judge the world at the end of time. But above all, Jesus, he asserted that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you know, it's no wonder that the Father describes his Son as beautifully beautiful. Because of all that he has done for his bride. All that he has done for his own bride. But it's not only what he has done for his bride, it's, it's what he says about his bride. Because we're told that grace is poured into his lips. He speaks graciously about her. And he speaks graciously to her. Not that she deserves it or has merited his grace or his gracious speech, but solely because he loves his bride. He loves the church. And he gave himself for it. And because Christ has his bride, the church, it says that God has blessed him forever. The church is the Father's gift to the Son. Think about that. We are the Father's gift to the Son. Chosen from before the foundation of the world to be presented as a bride adorned for her husband. And as the Father's description of the Son continues, it seems that the Father sings about how this happy couple came to be. How Christ and his bride came together to enjoy this wonderful relationship. In my mind, as, as we continue from uh, the words of verse 3 onwards, it's as if they're the words of the Father who spoke to his Son in the realms of eternity. Where the Father promised to his only begotten Son a bride to love and to cherish and adore. Because there in the realms of eternity, before the foundation of the world, the Father covenants with his Son that he shall have his bride. He enters into a covenant with him. And he says to him, the father says to the son, you will have your gift. You will have your bride. She will be yours. But you must go for her. And you must redeem her. And you have to buy her back. And you have to purchase her for yourself. And that wonderful covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son there was the promise of the bride and with the covenant agreed the Father says to his Son verse 3 gird your sword and your thigh O mighty one in your splendor and majesty in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness let your right hand teach you awesome deeds the Son was sent from the Father to ride out as a victorious warrior in order to free his bride from the grip of sin and death. And this exhortation from the Father to, to ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, all these words, truth, meekness and righteousness, they're all covenantal words, which further emphasize this covenant of redemption. 
the agreement between the father and the son for the bride. And if these words were to be translated literally, they would read, ride out victoriously with the word of truth and righteousness and do it in meekness. Do it with humility. Ride out victoriously with the word of truth and righteousness. And that's what the sharp arrows were. They were the sharp arrows which pierced the heart of the king's enemy. The word of truth and righteousness. The arrows of the king was the word of truth and righteousness. And you know my friend, it's so true. Because it was only the word of truth and righteousness which pierced our hearts. It was only the word of truth and righteousness which pierced our hearts that were cold and indifferent and hardened to the Saviour. It was only the word of truth and righteousness which pierced our hearts because no one else could speak to us. No one else could challenge us. No one else in all the world could bring us to our knees like this king brought us to our knees. Because when this king rode out, he rode out victoriously and he rode out in majesty and he fired his arrows of, of truth and righteousness he fired them from his bow and they were directed at us and they came to us in power and in conviction. And when we were once unwilling, he made us willing. When we were once stubborn, he made us bow. He made us humble. He pierced our hearts and he made us fall to our knees in submission to him. But it was then that he spoke tenderly to us. It was then that his lips, which are full of grace, poured forth words that were sweet. And it was then that our eyes were opened and we were enabled to see who this king really is. That he's the father's son. He's the beloved son. He's the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And he's our king. And we sing of him as the father son of him. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has Christed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. And there's all this beautiful imagery that's been described to us. And it's describing the one who is beautifully beautiful. Where his throne is from everlasting to everlasting. His scepter, it's a scepter of uprightness. He has been anointed, he's been Christed with the oil of, of rejoicing. He wears a robe that fills this, his palace with sweet fragrance. And what's remarkable about the fragrance is that the fragrance of Christ is a fragrance that began at his birth when the wise men brought to him gold, frankincense and myrrh. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh, aloes and cassia. But not only that, we're told that amongst all the singing and the rejoicing and the dancing and the music, standing at his right hand, standing in 
the place of honour and blessing and privilege. <clears throat> Standing at his side is the royal bride. The church is his queen. The church is his most prized possession. The church is his queen. My friend, this is, it's a beautiful love song. And it's the Father's love song about Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And so we've seen the description of the Son, that he's beautifully beautiful. But in the second half of the song, we're given the Father's desire for the Son. The Father's desire for the Son. If you look at verse 10, it says, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your, since he is your Lord, bow to him. And so in order for the father to present the gift of a bride to his beloved son, there is the sense in which he had to call the bride in order to leave her father's house and leave her father's homeland and cleave to her husband. And that's what we see in verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and climb your ear, forget your people and your father's house. And there are four imperatives in that verse, four commands given by the father. Listen, O daughter, consider, and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house. Listen, consider, incline, forget. And my friend, that's the call of the gospel. To listen to the word of truth and righteousness and respond to it. To consider your ways and commit your life to King Jesus. To incline your ear and live. And to forget and to leave behind your former ways. To come out from the world and be separate. To be known. To make your stand as part of the bride of Christ. And with this call from the Father to the bride of to be the bride of Christ, there not only had to be a willingness on the part of Christ to be the husband of the bride, in which he promised to love her and redeem her and cherish her, there also had to be a willingness on the part of the bride to love, honour and obey Jesus Christ. And you know, everyone loves the book of Ruth. Because in the book of Ruth, we witness, we can see the wonder and glory of, of our gospel. There is the love story of Ruth the Moabites and her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And of course, the love story between Ruth and Boaz, it's always time to reflect and portray to us Christ's love for his bride, the church. But in the book of Ruth, we're reminded that there was not only a willingness on the part of Boaz to redeem Ruth. There was also a willingness on the part of Ruth to commit herself to that redemption. And Ruth's willingness to com commit herself to, to following the Lord's ways and entering into the Lord's covenant, it was clearly displayed in her confession of faith. And it's one of the most wonderful confessions of faith in the Bible, where Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law, I <coughs> you remember, 
She's encouraging Ruth to go back to her people, back to her father's house. Go back there. But it's then that Ruth states her willingness to hear and consider and incline her ear and forget her people and her father's house. And when she says to Naomi, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. Where thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God, my God. And this wonderful confession is the confession of everyone who is part of the Church of Jesus Christ. It's the confession of everyone who is committed to being the Bride of Christ. In which we've heard the call of the Father and we have responded to that call by our commitment to the Father's Son. And because we've responded in commitment, the Father says in his song that the King will desire our beauty. He desires the beauty of the bride. He's seen, his, he's seen our commitment to him. And we've made him our Lord. And because he's our Lord, the Father says we are to worship him. We are to worship him. We are to love, honour and obey him. And we love him because, well, he first loved us. And he displayed that love to him. And we love him by praising his holy name. But we're also to honour him. And we honour him by honouring his word. We honour him by honouring his people. We, we honour him by honouring his day. We honour him by honouring his, his cause. And we obey him. We obey him by obeying his command. By obeying his counsel. We obey him by obeying his commission. My friend, because Jesus is our Lord, we are to worship him. We are to love, honour and obey him as our King. But what we see in these closing verses is where the bride has come from and where the bride appears. So you look at verse 12. He says, The people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts, the richest of, pe of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many coloured robes she is lent to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. And so the Father's love song about his son Jesus Christ and his, his, the Christ bride, who is us, the church. The Father says that the bride has come from Tyre and she will appear in the palace, in the palace of the king. Now Tyre was a significant place because it was Gentile territory. It was a city which belonged to, to Lebanon, which was north of Israel. And it was a, a Gentile city. It was a city which belonged uh, to those outside the covenant of grace. Outside the covenant. Those God, they were a part of God's covenant people. They were a nation of foreigners. They worshipped foreign gods. They were outsiders, you could say. They were Gentiles. And what we see here is that the Father's call to provide 
A bride for his son was a call to a Gentile woman. It was a call to those who were outside the nation of Israel and God's covenant people. And that was always the Father's vision. The Father's vision was that the Son would have a bride, not just from Israel, <coughs> but from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue. His vision was to call a bride, the church, from all the nations of the world to experience the blessings and privileges of the covenant of redemption. And this bride, as we said, he was, or she was to be the father's gift to the son. In which the bride will be a foreign bride, you could say, from foreign lands, but she will be brought into the presence of the father's son <coughs> and presented before him as the father's gift. She will be brought into the palace of the king and she will be presented in all her beauty to the king. And you know, it's no wonder that we sing these verses at the funeral of a Christian. Because the death of a Christian is <coughs> a beautiful thing. It may not be easy for the family, but the Bible affirms that it's precious in God's sight. Because a death is the Catechism puts it, the souls of believers are made perfect in holiness. They are made beautiful in holiness. They, and they do immediately pass into glory. They pass into the presence of the King. They are made to stand in the palace of the King and abide there forever. They enter into the Father's house. That's the wonder of the death of a Christian. They enter into the Father's house. And this is what I find so wonderful about the way in which the Bible builds this picture of, of a wedding between Christ and his bride because even Jesus spoke about his bride and his longing to see her face to face in heaven. The well known words, you know, of John 14, where Jesus says to his disciples, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And those words that Jesus spoke, they were words of betrothal or engagement. Because when a, a Jewish man would be betrothed to his future wife, he would get engaged with her and he would return to his father's house. And he would start building an extension onto his father's house for him and his bride to live in. And when the extension was complete, the son would leave the father's house and go and receive or retrieve his, his bride and take her back to the father's house. And at the father's house, the son would marry his bride and they would enjoy this great marriage feast and then dwell together in the father's house. And that's the image which Jesus is telling his bride about in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You can come to the Father's house. Because in my Father's house there are many mansions. And I think the wonder of, of Christ's bride, the church, is that 
when she sees him, this is the promise, she will be like him. The bride, us, will reflect his beauty and his glory. And you know, it's no wonder that when the Apostle John was given that revelation and vision of heaven and the marriage supper of the Lamb, he said that he heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude singing Hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And in John's vision, the angel says to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride is blessed. The bride is blessed because she is invited. And my friend, as those who are part of the bride of Christ, we have not only come to know the beautifully beautiful Son of the Father, we are also promised that we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what has been promised to us. That's what has, has been covenanted to us. This great marriage feast in the Father's house. In the Father's house. And so, Psalm 45 is the Father's love song. In which he gives a description of his son as beautifully beautiful. And he expresses the desire for his son to present him the gift of an equally beautiful bride, the church. But I love, I love the way in which the father concludes the love song. Because he says about his son in verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. And when reading this, I have in my mind the thought that because the church is the father's gift to the son, it is the father who promises that nothing will be able to separate the bride from his son, Jesus Christ. Because this marriage is like no earthly marriage. We put vows to happy or I put vows to happy couples which they enter into a covenant and they promise to one another that they will be loving, faithful, dutiful spouses for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, for sick, in sickness and in health. And they say to one another, until God shall separate us by death. But the wonder of this covenant, this marriage, this promise, is that the Father promises to us that nothing in all the world will separate us from his son. Not even death itself. You know, I always think, I've never thought about it before, but if you read Romans 8, and what Paul is saying, read it from the perspective of the Father, Father promising to us something about his son, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in his Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death itself will be able to separate us from him. Because when it comes to Christ and his blind, 
Death doesn't mean separation. Death means union. It's the moment when the bride is finally and completely united in marriage to the Father's Son. That's what death spells for the Christian. Union. Perfect union. Permanent union with Christ. And that's what Paul said in Ephesians 5. He's talking about marriage and he says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for him that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word and that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be presented to him holy and without blemish. My friend we have a great hope we have great promises we have a great God and Father and we have a great future as the bride of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. O Lord and gracious God, enable us to see this evening that we are those who are loved beyond our asking and beyond our thinking. That we thank Thee and we praise Thee for the love that has been demonstrated to us, not only in the death of thy Son, but also in the resurrection, ascension, and the second coming, that he will take his bride home to be with himself. And Lord, help us in this world, that although it is a world of pain and sorrow, a world of illness and trial and heartache, help us to see that there is a great feast awaiting us, Help us to set our affection on things above, that we might see Christ as our only affection, that we might hold on to him day after day, where the world, the flesh and the devil come upon us here, but yet, Lord, in the world that is to come, that faith will give way to sight, and that we shall see him, and when we see him, we shall be like him, and see him even as he is. Oh, bless us, Lord, in our weakness. Help us from day to day to keep pressing on towards the mark of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Do us good, Lord, we ask thee. Keep us on the way and go before us. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I shall conclude by singing in Psalm and Psalm 45. The first version of the psalm, page 267. <coughs> psalm 45, we're singing from verse 3 down to the verse mark 6. <coughs> o thou that art the mighty one, thy sword gird on thy thigh, in with thy glory excellent and with thy majesty, for meekness, truth and righteousness, in state light prosperously, and thy right hand shall be instruct in things that fearful be. Down to the verse mark 6 of Psalm 45, to God's praise. Oh,
fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.